Father Robert Altier was ordained to the priesthood 10 years before me in 1989 and currently serves the Archdiocese as parochial vicar of the Church of St. Rayfield in Crystal. Previously, he has served as an associate pastor here at the Church of St. Agnes for 14 years. Father Altier has been a member of the Secular Order of the Scalced Carmelites for 35 years and serves as a spiritual director for the Madre Dolorosa chapter in St. Paul. We are excited to welcome Father Altier back to St. Agnes as he wraps up our 2019 Lenten Lecture Series with his presentation on a great Carmelite nun, the little flower, St. Therese of Lisieux, the child Jesus. Please join me in welcoming Father Altier. Well, thank you. It's great to be back. And let's turn to our Blessed Lady and ask her prayers for us tonight. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Tonight we have the great privilege to consider the spirituality of St. Therese. She is by far one of the most popular saints in the church. She was called by the Pope who canonized her, the greatest saint of modern time. And perhaps at the same time, she is the most mis, uh, misunderstood and underestimated saint in the church. The misunderstanding comes from two sources. First, the title she gave herself of the little flower. And secondly, the childlike simplicity of her writing. So let's start with the second one. We have to recall that her sister was the prioress of the Carmelite Monastery in Lisieux. So Mother Agnes, who was Therese's sister, asked her to write what we now know of as her autobiography, or the story of the, of the soul. The book was written for her sister. It really wasn't written for all of us. And so there are lots of events that Therese talks about with regard to her own childhood, and of course their family life. I suspect that if she was anticipating that she would be writing for a wider audience, a lot of that stuff wouldn't have been in the book. So we also have to recall that Therese's mother died when she was very young. And so her sister was something like a mother to Therese when she was a child. And now she was her mother superior in the monastery. So again, there is that kind of relationship that is there with her, with her sister and mother superior. So that's why the way that she's writing is kind of, well, it's very childlike. Um, to the point of, uh, of Therese being called the little flower, that is something that most people get completely wrong. They look at that and they say, oh, it's so cute. <laughs> Isn't that nice? Anyway. <laughs> It's just cute to be the little flower of Jesus, isn't it? Well, it actually comes from an occasion where she was on a walk and she stopped and she noticed that out in the woods there were some little flowers that were there. And if she hadn't stopped, she certainly would never have seen those flowers. And consequently, she realized that almost nobody would ever notice those little flowers that were there. Consequently, she realized that those little flowers give joy to Jesus alone because no other human creature would ever even see them. And so she thought about it and she thought, you know what? I want to belong entirely and only to Jesus. I want to be like one of those little flowers, hidden away where nobody will see me and I will belong only to Jesus. That's what the little flower of Jesus is all about. Not cute, but <laughs> hidden and very strong. Anyway, because of the false idea of the cuteness of Therese, many people consequently have the idea that her spirituality is therefore going to be cute and easy. And for this reason, 
Therese is often contrasted with St. John of the Cross because he's mean and he's hard. But Therese, on the other hand, is nice and she's easy. Well, Therese is considered to be the most faithful follower of St. John of the Cross, his greatest disciple. If you break down St. John of the Cross and you ask yourself, what's the central concept? What is, if you bring it down to one word, what's St. John of the Cross all about? Love. You break Therese down to one word, what's it all about? Love. It's the exact same thing. That's the whole point. Perhaps as a friend of mine recently mentioned, what Therese did is she took St. John of the Cross and she put into practice his teaching in a woman's way. And so St. John of the Cross, obviously writing as a man, is going to present it a certain way. Therese was a brilliant young lady, and she was able to take all these things and kind of redefine certain things. And, and so that, that's what she was able to do. She was able to take what St. John of the Cross wrote, and in a feminine way, she was able to live it. And so, if you think about it, love is so dominant in the writings of Therese, and her writings obviously aren't very many, um, the word itself is used 360 times. And then if you conclude the synonyms for love, it's 500 times that she talks about love. So this is a central theme that comes up over and over. Her entire life was a canticle of love for Jesus. That's what her whole life was about. Now, we first have to recall that Therese was also determined from the age of three to become a saint. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was three years old, that was not what I was thinking about. <laughs> I just want to be a saint. Well, you know, obviously, there were some extraordinary graces that were given to Therese from a very early age. She says that never once in her life did she ever deny Jesus anything? Imagine if we could say anything even remote to that. If I could say I never denied him even a thousand times, but uh, I doubt I can even say that. So anyway, it is not surprising when you see that that's the way that she lived her life from such an early age. By the time she was 17, remember Therese died when she was 24, so by the time she was, was 17, in 1890, she came to understand that because she lived in time and Jesus lived in eternity, that the only way she could be united with him was through love. And so the point of understanding that is that there is a depreciation then of the ascetical efforts that she saw in all of the other saints. And the reason for that is because the works of asceticism, the, the self-denial, the, the, the dependences, all these kinds of things, they are specifically human acts that are, that are done, whereas love transcends time. Love is from God, and therefore it is of supreme value. So the ascetical acts are done in time, and they have to do with justice, whereas what Therese is looking at is what has to do with love. Now, love here is not gushy feelings. It is not dreamy fantasies. Love is doing everything for the beloved, period. Love is doing everything for the beloved. So, for instance, for Therese, her lack of consolations, both interior and exterior, she saw as a proof of God's special love. Her only happiness was the knowledge that the one that she loved is eternal because her love wasn't just going to be in time. Her love was going to be able to be forever. She says in a letter to her sister Celine, and this is a long quote, she said, Jesus does not will that we enjoy his adorable presence in peace. He hides himself. He enshrouds himself in darkness. He acted differently with the Jewish crowds, for we read in the Gospels that the people were in admiration of his doctrine. He attracted souls that were weak by the sweetness of his divine words. He tried to make them strong against the day of trial, 
but how few were his friends when he was silent before the judges. What a sweet melody for my heart is the silence of Jesus. He becomes poor that we may give him our alms. He holds out his hand like a beggar, so that at the glorious day of judgment, when he will appear in his glory, he may be able to address us in those sweet words, Come ye blessed of my Father, for I was hungry, and you gave me to eat, and so on. He puts himself, so to say, at our mercy. He will take nothing unless we offer it. The smallest thing is precious in his divine eyes." Unquote. So again, that point at the end is so critically important for us to understand. He will take nothing unless we offer it. He gave us a free will. He is not going to violate our free will, ever. And so it has to be a choice, and that's what love is. Love is a choice. And so we have to choose to give to him. And so what a beautiful concept of he's there like a beggar, waiting for us, just as he is in the Blessed Sacrament. He's there passively. He's waiting for us. So he is the almighty God, and yet in his absolute humility, there he is waiting for us to make the choice to come to talk to him, to wait for us to come to love him. That's, so that's, that's what Therese is looking, looking at. <coughs> so for Therese then, the silence of our Lord is his greatest homage to our free will. She sees it as the preferential treatment for our love. Now, when's the last time when you sat in prayer and it was just dead silent, totally dark, dry, nothing going on, and you said, praise the Lord, this is the greatest show that our Lord can give me of my free will. <laughs> yeah, that's not the way most of us see it. So, again, I told you, Therese is not, her spirituality is not cute and easy. She's looking at this in a very profound way and saying the silence of Jesus is his homage to my free will. And she says, as we referred to with, with Celine, that his silence is music to me. That's, you know, so again, that's, that's what we have to be able to see. So he to whom we owe everything wishes to give himself to us. Can you think about that? We owe him everything, and what he wants to do instead is give himself to us. So the creator, as Therese said, makes himself a beggar. And the only money that he cares about receiving is our love. That's all that he wants, is our love. So we saw earlier the distinction between the ascetical way of holiness and Therese's way of love. The saints of the previous time were moved to offer themselves to the justice of God because of the outrage every sin involves against God. And therefore, Consequently, the fearful punishment that this justice will demand toward the impenitent sinner when he stands before his creator. So the saints wanted to make some reparation. They wanted to bring grace for the repentance of these people and so on, so that on the day of judgment, things would be merciful. For Therese, God is just, of course, but he is all the more just because he is love. Under whatever aspect she conceives of God, his infinite love is first, that, and the verse that takes into account the weakness and the misery of humanity, whether the person is holy or sinful, and she opposes to this misery not justice, but mercy, which again, in English, we wouldn't quite catch it, but remember, the Latin word for, for mercy is misericordia, literally the misery of the heart, from the misery of the heart. And misericors would also be in French. And so the misery and the misery of the heart, the, the mercy is, is what she's talking about. So, so the words don't look at all similar in English, but in her native French, they would have been very similar. And so, so it's not the justice of God, but the mercy of God that is going to counter our human misery. It is then in this vein that St. Therese made her act of oblation to merciful love on the 9th of June of 1895. The concept is that if human beings reject God's love, what happens, she said, is that that love in essence is turned back upon its ever-flowing source, 
while they without it are lost. So in other words, we reject God's love, we basically send it back to him. Even though his love is constantly coming at us, we're just, we're just turning it back. And then we become lost if we don't have his love. And so what Therese did is she sees in this a twofold tragedy. First of all, that human beings are separated from God by their sins. And secondly, that God cannot pour his love upon them for their salvation. Because again, we have a free will. God isn't even going to force salvation on us. He's not going to force his love on us. He's not going to force his grace on us. We have to open our hearts to be able to receive it. So God offers, but we have a free will. And so Therese then offers to reverse the cycle. And she does this by offering herself to accept the streams of divine love that others have blindly refused and rejected. So she's willing to accept all of those graces so that they're not getting turned back, so that it just keeps pouring down, excuse me, upon earth and upon souls. She did not offer herself to divine justice because since it brought, uh, it, because since it is brought into activity against a sinner, and it is therefore of limited application, and it corresponds neither to God's original plan, nor to, to the most profound desires of infinite love. And so God's original plan was love. His desire is love. And so that's why she's looking at this saying, well, let's just focus on what God is about. So to offer oneself to love, on the other hand, is to offer oneself to what God is, to who God is, and to what he wishes for, both, for us both in time and in eternity. And so she prayed that God would consume her as a holocaust in the fire of the divine love, and holocaust in the technical sense. So when, a, when the Jewish people offered a holocaust, they would, they would slaughter the animal, then they would burn it on the altar. So the idea of a holocaust is something that's burned up. So she's looking at the fire of divine love and being burned up in the fire of divine love to be consumed. Again, these ideas come right out of St. John of the Cross. He talks about that same thing. Talks about how you put a log on the fire, the log will eventually catch fire. And it, the, the fire transforms the log into itself pretty soon it is completely consumed. There is nothing left of the log. And so that's the whole point. The log is going to be conformed to the fire, become the fire, and there will be nothing left of the log. So that's what Therese is looking at, becoming a holocaust of divine love, to be completely burned up in the love of God. Not destroyed, but fulfilled. So as Therese continues to grow in love then, after that point, she begins to realize that the desire that she has for love is infinite and that there is no way that ever any creature would ever be able to satisfy those desires. Only God, obviously, can satisfy an infinite desire for love. So for Therese, if God is going to put those desires there, then only he can satisfy them. But not only can he satisfy them, he will satisfy them. This is the basis of Therese's oblation. If her desires were simply immense, then the immensity of creatures would be able to fulfill them. Her desires are infinite, and consequently only God can fulfill them. Now in the midst of her final trial, in the darkness of her soul, halfway between her oblation and her death, then uh, what, this is where she discovered her place within the church. That is the heart. So again, she's reading through St. Paul and seeing all the various things that, that all the different things that St. Paul talks about, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13, all the different things. And then she said, I didn't see myself in any of them. She said, I wanted all of them, but I didn't see myself in any of them. So she just kept reading. And then she says, but St. Paul says, I will show you a still more excellent way. And then talks about charity. And she says, I finally found my vocation. My vocation is love. It is to be at the heart of the church. The heart pumps out the blood to all the other parts of the body so that they have life. And what is the life of the church? It's love. 
So that, therefore, what she's doing is pumping the love out to all of the extremities so that, that the, the love of God is going to be there for everybody. And so that's what she recognized her vocation to be, the vocation to love. And that occurred somewhere between the 10th of May and the, and the 8th of September of 1896. So for Therese, charity is not only the most excellent way as we just heard from St. Paul, and not only the only the, the necessary condition for all the other gifts to have supernatural merit, but it is the vital principle of the entire activity of the church, and consequently it, it encompasses all vocations. So this understanding brought Therese great peace because it satisfied her longing for an all-embracing love. Love is at the heart of the church, Therefore, whoever chooses love, chooses all. And so that's the beauty of it. It's, it's all-encompassing. So no matter what our vocation happens to be, if we're choosing love, it's not only within that vocation, but it encompasses, encompasses everything else because love is God. God is love. And so, so therefore, everything within God, every vocation, every person, is going to be part of that. And that's the way St. Therese was seeing it. So love then was the end, just as it was the beginning of St. Therese's spiritual pilgrimage, because love is God himself living and acting in his creature and with an all-embracing charity. So love then, that, that, uh, the, the love that united her to God was the rich source of all of her works for souls. And in the depths of her soul, it was the guarantee of her joy. So whatever might happen, and Therese had to suffer a lot, but whatever was going to happen, nothing could take away her peace. Nothing could destroy her peace. Her soul was filled with the purest love, and it was now given over absolutely and unreservedly to the free action of the God of love. So in that self-oblation, it was to do whatever God wanted her to do. He could do with her whatever he wanted. All that she wanted was to be burned up in love. It didn't matter what God was going to do. So she was totally, totally at peace. The amazing thing about Therese, I mean, you know, again, got somebody who starts when she's three on this process. But even that, ask yourself, look back to when you were a kid and some of the things that you thought about, you know, and what you wanted to do and how you wanted to do them. Well, the amazing thing about Therese is that she maintained everything that she determined to do from the time that she was a child. She never became discouraged. At her first communion, she decided she was never going to be discouraged. And she never was. She maintained all of her ideals in their fullness and even augmented them. She remained strong, she remained faithful, all these things. And the question then is, how? How did she manage to do this? Well, I suspect we've all heard of the little way of St. Therese. But did you know that St. Therese never once mentions the little way in her writings? It's not there. We, it is her expression. It came out of her mouth. But it was recorded twice, on the 12th of July and on the 17th of July, of 1897, when her sister, Mother Agnes, was writing down some of the last words of Therese before she died. So she died in September of that year, so this was in August. And so although she lived, uh, she had lived this for a number of years in her life, it seems that the insight regarding the little way was very late. So again, she's living it, but hadn't put together the whole concept of it in her mind. But it was only as she's literally preparing for death that it finally comes to, to, it comes to fruition in her mind. Now, when we think about the little way of spiritual childhood, the natural inclination for people is to assume that we're talking about the passage from St. Matthew's Gospel from 18.3, where it says, unless you, become, unless you be converted and become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And there are lots and lots of people who have written articles about Therese's spirituality that say that this is the central verse to understand her doctrine. Well, it's a, it's a verse that's never mentioned in her autobiography or in any of her letters. 
It is used once in a poem that she wrote, but in an entirely different context than the spiritual childhood. And in case you think that maybe Therese just kind of overlooked it or whatever, in again, the relatively brief writings that we have of Therese, she quotes over 340 scripture passages. So script, quoting scripture was pretty common to her. And if this was central to her, the way she lived, it would have been there. So it is not. So we also have to understand the concept of littleness. In other words, when it's the little way of spiritual childhood, what is that that it means? And just as we've already seen that most people misunderstand what little flower is, um, it's, it's very different from the way we typically think of little. She does indeed talk about herself in that typical diminutive, uh, diminutive sense of little, uh, but the little way is anything but weak and childish. It is, it, it is not weak physically or morally. It is, it is not an easy way of holiness for the tempted and the careless. So in other words, if we think, can think we can just sit back and say, well, I don't have to worry about it, then I can just be a saint and take the little way. It's like, well, it's not quite that easy. Again, all you have to do is look at Therese's life. Her example should dispel any thought of tepidness or lukewarmness or sappiness or anything else. And so it is a way of love, but it is a way of heroic love. And that's what we have to understand. You know, Therese, you know, as she said, I will not be a saint by halves. And so she didn't cut corners on anything. It was, it was all or nothing for Therese. Now in her lifetime, well, not that it was a very long lifetime, but in her lifetime, Therese suffered from anxiety, scrupulosity, and fear. And she was healed of all three of these over the course of a decade, but it was not until 1891 that she was finally released from the anxiety. And the day after, she was able to give herself in absolute and total confidence to God. St. John of the Cross said, we receive as much as we hope for from God. St. Therese used that, but as she usually does, she turned it to make it her own way. She said, as we've already heard, God never gives desires that he cannot grant. And so if God has placed the desire there, he's going to fulfill it. So her desire from childhood was to be a saint. So now the, the anxiety was gone. She could give herself entirely to God and with total confidence, well, she now knew that God could fulfill her desire. However, when she looked at the great saints and then looked at herself, she found herself to be rather tiny in comparison and saw absolutely no way in herself that she could be like the great saints. And so that's where the little way was born in her mind. In the autobiography, The Story of the Soul, as we read through it, there are six basic principles that we can look at uh, if we want to follow this path of littleness and become a great saint. The first is a fundamental attitude of the will. Again, at her first communion, as I mentioned, she determined that I will never allow myself to be discouraged. So ask yourself how often you get discouraged. Therese never once allowed herself to be discouraged. She maintained this resolution and it got her through all of her struggles because she always had confidence in God, always put her trust in God. The second principle is the realization of, as she would say it, the good God could never inspire me with desires that cannot be fulfilled. So the point we saw a minute ago. So following from this, she can say, despite my littleness, I can become a saint. So God has put it in my heart to want me to become a saint. Then, even if I'm little, I can still be a saint. The third is the fruit of her experience, wherein she states, for me to be a, become a great saint is impossible. I will have to put up with myself as I am with my numberless imperfections. Now, again, to remember the Pope called her the greatest saint of modern time, but again, she's looking at it from the inside, saying it's not possible for me to become a great saint, but look at her attitude toward herself, and we can think about our own selves. 
You know, I will just have to put up with my numberless imperfections. Now she's talking about imperfections. She's not talking about sins. So remember, this is a woman who never once committed a mortal sin in her life. So we're not talking about, oh, I'll just have to put up with myself with all of my sins. No, she's talking about her little imperfections. Anyway, she understood clearly that she was far from the ideal that she sought and that by her own strength and ability, she would never be able to attain any of those ideals and let alone even be able to overcome her faults. And again, that is something that is, is true for all of us. You know, she still maintained that it was possible for her to attain sanctity, but she knew she couldn't do it alone. So this is where we see again the greatness of, of Therese. She's able to clearly define the impasse that she finds herself at, and yet she is able to find the way around it. And so again, understand that none of us can become a saint by ourselves. None by our own strength, by our own ability. If you decided today that for the rest of your life you're going to try to do it this way, you can't do it by yourself. Without God's grace, it is impossible. Even to overcome your faults. Because the, 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 the deeper they go, the more that they have to be burned out of us. And so that's what they would call the passive purifications. And in other words, the things that happen to us. So you can say, okay, I have this fault. Here's what I'm going to try to do to overcome it. There are some things you can do. Those are active purifications. You're choosing what you're going to do. But, you know, for instance, the easiest one to look at is humility. If you decide, and there are a few things, again, you can do with humility. You can say things like, well, okay, I'll, I'll just try and stay in the background. I'll try to remain silent. I'll try to be hidden. I'll, you know, those are things that you can do. But if you decide what I'm going to do is humiliate myself on purpose so that I can grow in humility. Okay, you can do that. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to walk away and you're going to be so proud of what you did to humiliate yourself that it's going to be worse than if you didn't do it in the first place. So that's the problem. The only way to humility is humiliation and it has to happen to us. So. That's the passive purification. When it comes from the outside, it happens to us. God is the one ordering all this. So what Therese is recognizing in herself, like I said, is true for all of us. We cannot overcome these faults by ourselves. We cannot become a saint by ourselves. Only God can do that. So that brings us then directly to the fourth point, and that is that Sir Therese realized that by her own effort, she could not climb the mountain that leads to heaven. And so she began to ask if there might not be a more direct way, which is interesting because I always tell people that there are all these paths up the mountain. You know, if you want to take the Benedictine way, that goes up one way. If you want to take a Franciscan way, that's a different path. If you want to take a Dominican way, that's a different path. We're all going up the same mountain. But if you want to take the way of St. John of the Cross, it's straight up the cliff. <laughs> and, and yet here's Therese looking at that and saying, there's got to be a quicker way. There's got to, it's like, well, the shortest way is right up the cliff. But no, 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 Therese wasn't, wasn't content with that. And the point that she's looking at is she said to herself, this is, you know, as she's pondering this, you know, she's thinking about these wealthy people over in France at the time. And she said, you know, in the homes of the wealthy, they don't have to climb up the stairs. They've got a lift. They just get on their little elevator and it goes up and they don't have to climb the steps. Well, that's, that's a lot easier. And so that's what she was looking for. She wanted to be a saint. There had to be a way to union with God to be able to be lifted up. So her question then gets to the heart of the truth about our own selves. Again, as I mentioned, the absolute impossibility of achieving the heights of the spiritual life by our own strength and therefore the need to seek divine assistance to get to where we want to go. So in essence, what she was seeking is a way that she could be raised to the heights of sanctity by having to do no more than to accept and to cooperate with the action of God in her life. Okay, that is where the difficulty comes, that most of us fight what God's trying to do. And Therese is simply saying, if you can accept it and you can cooperate with it, that's the way to do it.
So that's what she's looking for. Is there a way to do this? She said, well, obviously only God can answer the question. She's looking for a lift from God. Is this going to happen? So Therese searched the scriptures to see if she could find a point uh, that, that, would, that, that would talk about something like this. Is there, is there a lift that's going to bring her where she could not get to on her own? And, you know, it took her, took her a while, but eventually she came across Proverbs 9.4 that said, if anyone is a child, let him come to me. And so she thought, okay, then we're, we're getting there. And as she continued reading, it was, uh, was the, the next point that really opened things up for her, and that's from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 12 and 13. And it is that verse which has changed the spiritual landscape forever. That's the root of what her understanding was. In the, in the Revised Standard Version, it says, You will suck, you will be carried upon her hip, you will be dandled upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you. The way it's usually translated is you'll be carried in her arms and fondled in her lap, and as a mother comforts her son, so will I comfort you. That's what she's looking for. Wait a minute. God is going to lift somebody up like a mother does. And so that, that's so she's saying, hey, look, God is promising this through Isaiah. That's what I'm looking for. And so she took note also of the fact that Jesus himself called the little ones to himself. And then he took him in his arms and he embraced them. But she noticed that Jesus took the initiative when it came to the children. And so this is what she was looking for. And she said, your arms, O Jesus, are the lift which must raise me to heaven. So he will have to lift me up. And so the sixth point follows. If God is so good to the children and raises them up in his arms, then if we will remain little, then we will have the advantage of his call and of his love. Since Jesus is the one who called the children to himself, that's what we're going to have if we're willing to to be, to be little, again, not to be child, you know, not to be, you know, he says we have to become like children, but we aren't to become ch childish or anything. Um, so the idea is to become smaller and smaller, which means more and more humble. That's what, what we're looking for is the humility. And so all of this happened to her between 1891 and 1893. It was the realization of her own helplessness to attain sanctity that led her to this understanding. So spiritual childhood then requires an understanding of the gratuitous nature of our redemption and a desire to receive it as a free gift from God. So that's just what gratuitous means. It's freely given. We cannot earn God's grace. We cannot earn our redemption. It is freely offered. Jesus gives it to us as a gift not as a reward. And so it has to be received that way. And this is why St. Therese was so certain then that this was for everybody. This was for all souls, because regardless of how much pride we have, that we might think that we're doing this by ourselves, I have the strength to do it or whatever, the reality is all of us are saved gratuitously. It is, it is a gift. And so we must accept this in the depth of our being, and in every aspect of our lives, and thereby give first place to God in our lives and be ready to freely welcome him and all of his gifts to us. That's, in essence, what Therese is looking at in the little way. So on August 6th of 1897, so just a month before her death, she was asked what it meant to be a child in God's sight. And she answered, again, this is a long quote, it is to recognize one's nothingness, to expect everything from the good God as a little child expects everything from his father. It is to be anxious about nothing, to earn no riches. Even among the poor, a child is given all he needs. But as soon as he grows up, his father will support him no longer and says to him, now work and go and look out for yourself. As I do not want to be told that, I have no wish to grow up for I am incapable of earning my living, that is, eternal life in heaven. That is why I have always remained little 
and nothing else to, to, and nothing else to do save gather flowers, flowers of love and of sacrifice, and offer them to the good God to please him. To be little is also to take no credit for the virtues one practices, and to realize one is capable of nothing, but to recognize that the good God places the treasure of virtue in the hand of the little child so that he can make use of it whenever he needs it, yet it always remains the property of God. Lastly, never to be discouraged at one's faults, for little children fall often, but they are too small to harm themselves. So a couple of the things in there to, to, to look at, first of all, um, when she talks about she doesn't want to have to go out and work and support herself, uh, that's not where she says, I don't want to grow up. That's not what she's, she's not talking about that in the natural way. She's talking about she cannot earn her way to heaven. No matter what she does, she isn't going to be able to, to make what is required to get to heaven. So therefore, if I just remain little, if I remain humble, God will take care of it all. I don't have to do that. And, and so, so that's, that's what she's looking at. Um, and then when she talks about being convinced of our nothingness, that is not in the, the negative sense of that. I'm just worthless. I'm no good. I'm nothing. Uh, that's not Therese at all. It's to be able to recognize that God has created us with immense dignity. And everything that God has done is beautiful and it is good. The only thing, and I mean the only thing, that we can take absolute credit for in our lives are the things that we have to confess in the confessional. That we can say, I did without God's help. <laughs> Everything else requires God's help. So that's what she's looking at. There is nothing, literally. And, that's, and again, this isn't new from Therese. Jesus said it. Without me, you can do nothing. It's an absolute. He didn't say, well, there are some things you can do by yourself. Let me know if you need some help. No, he said, you can do nothing. And that's what Therese is picking up on. By myself, I can do nothing. So again, it's the humility. It's the, it's the littleness that she's looking at. I can't do anything. Therefore, I need the Lord to pick me up and to, to do this. And so, and what a beautiful idea also, this concept of children fall a lot, but they're too little to, to hurt themselves. You know, they're pretty low to the ground, so it doesn't hurt too badly when they fall. And so, so Therese reminds us that if we fall out of weakness, God doesn't mind that. If we fall out of malice, yeah, that's offensive to God. But if in our weakness we keep falling over and over and over again, God's okay. He's not getting upset with it any more than a parent gets upset because their little two-year-old keeps falling. Well, that's what two-year-olds do. They fall a lot. You know, and you don't get angry, you pick them up, you brush them off, you, you know, off they go again. And so that's what God will do with us. He's very patient with us. As long as it's weakness, he's fine. If it's malice, no, he's not. And so, so that's what we want to be able to understand for our own self. And St. John of the Cross again talks about this. He talks about the fact that God will actually allow the faults that are the most frustrating to us to remain all the way till we achieve perfection. For the very reason that we talked about earlier, that if we overcame those faults, we would be so proud of the fact that we overcame them that it would be worse than having the fault there. So he said, God allows those to stay all the way because they're humiliating to us, because they help us grow in humility, and therefore when the humility is perfect, then he can take them away and we're not gonna get arrogant about it because the humility is there. But until that time, he's gonna leave them. So obviously, if he's going to leave them because it's actually better for us to have the faults than to have them gone and the pride that would replace them, again, you see where our problem is. So, so God isn't going to be angry that the faults are there. He just wants us to have that desire to keep growing in holiness and to be able to accept with humility that we're weak, that we're broken, that we're little. So... Now, a few weeks prior to this last uh, quote that I just, uh, just mentioned, so that last quote was from August 6th of 1897, so a month before she died. So a few weeks before that, on July 17th, she was asked about the way that she wanted to teach to souls after her death. And she answered, and I quote, It is a way of spiritual childhood. 
It is the way of confidence and complete trust in God. I want to teach them the little ways that I have found to succeed so perfectly. To, to say to them that there is but one thing to do here below, to lay before Jesus the flowers of little sacrifices and to win him by caresses. That is how I have won him, and that is why I shall be made so welcome by him. Now again, on one hand, you could say, well, that's pretty arrogant, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus is going to welcome me to heaven. And yet what she says is that I expect as much from the justice of God as I do from the mercy of God. Again, that's not the way most of us think. We're going to be afraid of the justice of God. We're going to count on his mercy. And she's looking at it and saying, oh, no, no, no. God, God, if he's just, he's going to be rewarding me for what I did. So if I've loved God with my whole heart and soul and strength, then I'm going to expect as much from his justice as I do from his mercy. It's like, wow, if we could all say that, huh? So that's why she could say, God's going to welcome me. She had, again, it is the absolute confidence. When you look at Therese, the confidence is one of the signature points of her spirituality absolute confidence, absolute trust in God. Again, you just have to look at it and ask yourself a couple of questions. I've asked this over the years. So is God all-powerful? Is God all-knowing? Is God all-loving? Okay, if God is all-knowing, he knows what is absolutely the best for you. If God is all-loving, he chooses what is the very best for you. And if God is all-powerful, he has the ability to make sure that the situations in your life are the ones that are going to be the best for you because that's already what he knows and what he's chosen. We look at what goes on in our life and we say, I could think of a much better way of doing this. <laughs> well, that's because we don't like the frustrations and the struggles and the sufferings and so on. Remember what we saw a little bit ago, to accept and to cooperate with what God is doing in our lives. That's the little way. And so again, we keep fighting it. Therese didn't try to fight it. She just accepted. She had absolute confidence. She had absolute trust. And that's, that's, what, that's what she's telling us to do as well. So spiritual childhood then, as understood and practiced in her lifetime by Therese, is a way of holiness then for five reasons. First, it is a way suitable for all souls who are conscious of their littleness before God, whether it's because they have to rely on pure faith or because they realize their own weakness and therefore they dare not compare themselves to the saints. So God wants all of us to be saints, but it's not to be able to look at the great saints and say, that's what I have to be like. Because first of all, every saint is different. You, know, you can lump them into different categories and so on, but everyone is unique, everyone's different. They all have their own personalities, their own abilities, and so on. So you can't say, that's who I want to be like. I mean, you can look at some of the ideals that they have and say, yeah, that's what I want, but you're not going to be that saint. You know, Father Zulsdorf likes to joke about how, you know, what he'd really like to see is some pope take the name of Pius X, the second, and then he could be St. Pope Pius X II. And it's like, well, that's cute, but you know, there can only be one. It's, uh, and, and so there can only be one of each one of the saints. You can't become the second. And so you have to become your own saint. So don't look at the other saints and say, that's the way it has to be. It doesn't. God's going to make you a saint according to your personality, according to your state in life, according to the circumstances in your life. And so it's a matter of cooperating with him. Um, anyway, the second point is that this is a way that does not require any exceptional graces, which could lead to pride. Oh, I saw Jesus. I heard Our Lady talking to me. Oh, I float now. Oh, you know, whatever. It's like, you know, again, we're going to get arrogant about that kind of stuff. She's saying, no, no, no. This doesn't require any special grace. Just be little. Little kids don't look for extraordinary things. They just, they're, they're just being themselves. So again, it's not about extraordinary graces. It's not about, did this thing happen to you or did that thing happen to you? It's not, it's, it's just, just being you with God is all that's important. The third point 
is that this way is so short and so rapid that it brings the pilgrim his, to, to his desired end very shortly after he has begun. In other words, once we can actually recognize how small we are and be as such, then we're going to move very quickly. Getting to that point, however, is a problem. And again, Therese started when she was three. Um, you know, ask yourself, when did I start taking the spiritual life seriously? And, you know, you look at her and, you know, from three until she was, you know, and, well, again, she had been living it, but to fully understand it, you know, when she's 24, it's like, okay, so that took Therese 21 years to get to that point, and she never sinned once, never mortal sin, and she'd been trying since she was three. Uh, yeah, it's going <laughs> to... So, for most of us, we're probably going to learn the little way in purgatory. But, uh, but we can keep working at it here anyway. We can learn the little way, it's just putting it into practice, it's the challenge. Anyway, the fourth point is that because the soul who walks along this way does not grow great through his own efforts, but remains in its littleness and even in a sense is pleased with its littleness because it's incapable of any kind of supernatural act, the soul then looks to God alone and receives from him all its greatness, and which is then true greatness. Again, we like to be able to pump ourselves up and say, look what I did. Somebody who's little, so look what God did. Everything is the Lord, it's not me. And that's, that's the point. So if a soul can maintain that littleness before God and before others, that's when God can make it truly great. Finally, it is a way on which the soul is borne along by our Lord and therefore reduces its activity to a minimum, doing nothing more than loving him and offering to him the countless sacrifices for which this little way provides occasion. So when I say by doing nothing, that does not mean becoming a quietist. Uh, quietism is sort of like lying on your bed and saying, oh, God, will just do everything. I don't have to do anything. No, 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 that's not the point. It's to simply say, I don't have to be doing all these things in order to become holy. I have to be obedient to the duties of my state in life. I have to do the will of God. I have to accept what God is sending. That's the point. And so, so Therese is obedient to, to her rule, and she is, is doing everything that the superiors ask, and then she's accepting all the trials and all the struggles that come from the hand of God. And that's something all of us would be able to do as well. So this little way then is based upon the nothingness of creatures in the sight of God, and that therefore there's no independence or self-sufficiency that can be allowed to creatures by him who holds in his hand all the graces that they need for sanctification and salvation. So again, we tend to have a very bad idea of that understanding of nothingness. So let me put it to you in a different context. It's St. Louis de Montfort. He talks about Our Lady. And he says, remember, we're talking about God who is infinite. Our Lady, the greatest human person ever, the highest human person, higher than all the angels and saints, and loving more, St. Louis de Montfort says, than all the angels and saints combined, says, compared to God, Our Lady is less than a speck of dust. So what does that make you and me? <laughs> Pretty tiny. So again, because God is infinite. So as great as Our Blessed Lady is, God is infinitely more than what Our Lady is. And he's infinitely more than all of us. So if we can understand it that way, that's the point of the nothingness compared to God. We're nothing. I mean, God has made us the pinnacle of his creation, his material creation. He's given us all the graces. He made us in his image and likeness. And again, all those things, we're not trying to deny any of that. That's the beauty and the goodness that God has given to us. But in and of ourselves, we're nothing. And that's the point that, that, that we have to understand. So consequently, there can be no self-sufficiency because we're not. We're creatures and we're in need of God's grace to become holy and to be saved. We cannot become holy by ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. And at the same time, this is not a way, again, of timidity or pettiness, nor of lukewarmness, nor of mediocrity. It is not a way of lesser perfection than that of the other saints, because remember, it was discovered because Therese had an unbounded desire for sanctity. She wanted to reach 
the absolute heights of sanctity. So this isn't a lesser way of becoming holy. This is the way of becoming the holiest, as she's seeing it. So in a nutshell, the little way of spiritual childhood uh, is the offering and yielding up of one soul without reserve to the free disposal of God's infinite love, giving yourself 100% to God to do with as he, to, as he desires. Therese was able to prepare herself for this grace by her faithful observance to her rule and recognized the inadequacy of her own efforts to achieve the goal of union with God. And she was able to remain in her littleness because she received the grace to understand her nothingness and the Lord's powerful assistance in all of her needs. Well, that's pretty wonderful for Therese. How does that translate to people like you and me who aren't so strong, who aren't so small, and who aren't so holy to begin with. Well, for Therese, the human person, whether holy or sinful, whether strong or weak, is always nothing. God is everything. God is all in all. And so, again, it's, you know, what, what, it's one of my favorite God quotes. It's uh, what, he, what he said to St. Catherine of, of Siena. I am he who is, and you are she who is not. Okay? So, that says it all. God is everything and we are nothing, if we look at it that way. So if we would accept this truth, then we could immediately yield and, and, and be placed uh, on the lift into God's arms, into the Lord's arms, and raised up by God to his power and his sanctity. Because then we're going to let God work through us. And so again, that's the true greatness that, that we heard about before. And so if we're, if we're looking at our imperfections and thinking that we're not worthy, which we aren't and we can't become worthy by ourselves anyway, we have to remember the reason that Therese was looking for the lift was because of the recognition of her own imperfections. And she recognized that something else had to happen because she couldn't do it herself. So give your imperfections to God and let him deal with them since he knows perfectly and infinitely better than we do how best to address them and let him do what he wants. Just get out of the way and trust. If you're focused instead on your sins and again find yourself unworthy and you say, oh, I'm too big of a sinner, can this work for me? Yes. Why? because a sinner has nothing to offer to God and nothing on which to rely other than the mercy of God. And so that's the greatest place to be. You know, and, and again, Therese, well, she talks about this in a couple of different ways. So first, let me give you a quote that she, she told Mother Agnes. She said, if I committed every possible crime, I should always have the same confidence. I should be sure that my innumerable offenses would be a drop of water cast into a burning furnace. The furnace of God's love, one drop of water cast into the furnace, it's gone. She said, if I committed a mortal sin, I would have even more confidence to run and jump into the arms of God's mercy. She said, the biggest sin, think of the worst thing that you can possibly do. She said, compared to God's mercy, that's like one little drop of water in the ocean of God's mercy. So again, the devil is there telling us that we're a bunch of losers and we're horrible and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, admittedly, some of the sins we've committed are pretty rotten. But remember also the mercy of God. If you have gone to confession, you've confessed your sin, it's gone. It's not there anymore. When God looks at your soul, he doesn't see the sin because he destroyed it. He removed it from your soul. He destroyed it. It's gone. Don't keep going back to it. I mean, that's literally where, when scripture says, like a dog that returns to its vomit. And that's what we keep doing. We keep going back to our sins and saying, oh, what a rotten person I am. What a loser. God's looking at you and saying, no, it's gone. Why do you keep going back if it isn't there? Look at his mercy. Look at him. And again, look at some of the great saints. Imagine if St. Augustine would have just been going, well, yeah, but look what I did. I can't, I can't do this. What if Mary Magdalene would have done that? Well, you know, again, look at, look at the saints. And you say, they didn't get stuck in their sins. 
And some of them have committed sins that are way worse than you and I have committed. And they're great saints. And we're, we keep kicking ourselves because of our sins. So again, that's where we have to be able to say no. The biggest sin that I can commit is still pretty tiny compared to God's infinite mercy. And so look at his mercy and look at his love and just strive to love him. And remember that, that our Lord told us that the one who's been, been forgiven more is going to be the one who loves him more. So if you can accept his mercy because your sin is that big, then what that does is it opens your heart to love him even more. So rather than the way that the devil wants us to look at it, you can't love God because you're such a rotten sinner, the Lord tells us just the opposite. And Therese, looking at herself, by the way, looking at that one, then somebody said, well, gee, so if you've never committed a mortal sin, you can't love God very much because, you know, the one that's, committed, that, that's forgiven the bigger sin loves him more. She said, no, it's actually the matter that God in his mercy kept me from that sin so that I could love him. So it's a matter of looking at it as St. Augustine did. If it not, weren't for the grace of God, that would be me. You know, so we all have to know that we're sinful. We look at people who are doing horrible things and rather than saying, look at that one over there, what a loser. Well, all we can do is look at it and say, you know what? That would be me if it weren't for the grace of God. Any sin that anyone else is capable of committing, so am I. We have to remember that. We can't look at it and say, I would never do that. Because you know what? I've learned this over the years. If you do that and you make that judgment on that other person, God will set it up so within about a month somewhere, you will do exactly what you just said you would never, ever do. And so, dumb idea. Don't, don't do that. So just thank God that it's not you. And then pray for the other person for their conversion. Anyway. This way of spiritual childhood then is open to everyone because it teaches us who are nothingness. And by the way, again, another Carmelite saint, St. Teresa of the Andes, she didn't just call herself nothing. She called herself criminal nothingness. And so, again, you look at these, at these by the, St. Teresa of the Andes died when she was 19. You know, I mean, these Carmelites, I don't know. Of course, I have to look at myself. I'm clearly not being a good one because, you know, you, you got Teresa of the Andes dies at 19, Therese dies at 24, Elizabeth of the Trinity dies at 26. It's like, what am I doing wrong? You know? Uh, anyway, I'm not being a good Carmelite. That's the problem. But anyway, um, so we are nothingness itself, and we are always ready to fall into sin. So in this little way, the best and most urgent thing that we can do is give ourselves to the omnipotent, omnipotent action of the infinitely good God, as Therese calls him, without reserve. 100% give yourself to God with absolute confidence, absolute trust. The little way is also short by nature because God then can act independently of the laws of time. He can do, if, you, if you're giving yourself to him completely and you keep giving yourself to him completely, because again, we say that and then we take it all back. And so we have to keep giving ourselves over and, and trust him, give it all. And, and then he can do what he wants. He can act outside of the time. He can, he, can, he can suspend the laws of nature if he needs to. And so when this is understood, then it's recognized that the way of spiritual childhood is little only from the perspective of human weakness. On the side of God, it is supernaturally great. And so it's that dichotomy again. What God has done, what we have done. It is a little way when we recognize our nothingness. It is the greatest way when we recognize that God is all in all. So the Lord be with you. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. I think we got about four minutes left, so if anybody has a question, I guess we can entertain it. I'm just thinking, uh, well, we, obviously she was the height of humility, uh, St. Therese, but I want to ask, when, and she never did a mortal sin, but when she said that she had a fault, 
to overcome. Can, can you give an example of one little fault that she might have considered that she had? The question has to do with, with the fault that the Therese might have seen in herself. And again, it's, you know, some of her fears, some of her pride, some of her selfishness, you know, some, you know, so all those little things, you know, it's, um, it's just, so they weren't big sins, but, but nonetheless, um, the root of all the things is our selfishness. So, someone else had a question? Can you tell us uh, how it was possible for the be the patroness of the missions, when in fact she never went to any of the missions? Yes, for a, for a, uh, for a Carmelite nun who's in a, in a monastery in, in France, how did she become the patroness of the missions? It's because she had such a burning desire for souls and that she wanted to go to the missions. Again, it's that point of, I choose all. You know, I will not be a saint by halves, I choose all. And that recognition that her love then encompasses all the vocations. So she's looking at the missionaries and has this great love for souls and wants to be able to go out and save them, but then realizes her task is to love, so it's to pump the love to the missionaries so that they can bring the, the, these, these souls to the, to the Lord. And so that's how she became the patroness of the missions, is she had such a profound love for the missions and, and for, for the, the love of souls to be able to, to save them. I got two things. Um, I don't know if you said it, and I just missed it, but how did she actually die? Therese died of tuberculosis. Okay. And uh, I was just wondering, do you know how to make God laugh? <laughs> make a plan. Sorry, everybody else was laughing. I don't know if God was, so I, I, didn't, I didn't, didn't hear your answer. <laughs> yep, tell them what your plans are, exactly. And then God's got a great, God has the best sense of humor of anybody I've ever met. It's very dry, very dry, but really, really funny. So anyway, God bless you. Thank you, God. Thank you all very much for coming. It's been uh, a fantastic series with great speakers, great lectures, and really great turnout. And you guys make that happen. And thank you very much for coming for this year's Lenten Lecture Series.